and welcome to episode 3 of the Unarchived History Podcast. I'm Misha. And I'm Dan. So Dan, you're always off travelling around the country. What's been your favourite place to visit abroad? Well, I actually lived in Australia for a while, Misha, and travelled New Zealand quite a lot. So if I'm perfectly honest, if I could be anywhere in the world, it would probably be Melbourne or Queenstown. But if we're talking purely for my love of history, it has to be Rome. I was there just last month and there's nowhere in the world that has the same amount of incredible history right at your fingertips. The Palatine Hill and the Vatican are two of my personal favourite sites in the Italian capital. I have to agree with you there. Italy is amazing. I was there last year, actually. I have to admit, I really do want to see more of the UK. But this time three years ago, I was in Peru by myself. I went out there to volunteer on an archaeological site called Huacapuquiana in Lima. And it's been one of the most eye-opening experiences I've ever had and also unforgettable. I got to try out a few different archaeological skills. I started at the bottom, sieving through the dust and rubbish, and then I worked up to restoring some textiles and then some clay. I even got to saw a mummy up close and personal. Oh, it's amazing, aren't we an adventurous bunch? (laughs) We are. So what part of London are we in today? Today we are in southeast London, in the Royal Borough of Greenwich. Situated on the River Thames, it has a wealth of maritime and Romano-British history. Appointed a World Heritage Site in 1997, the protected area hosts a variety of architectural pieces, from the Jacobean Charlton House, the Palladian-styled Queen's House, to the English Baroque-style, seen at the old Royal Naval College. Other well-known places in the borough include the Royal Observatory, Cutty Sark and Eltham Palace. I love Greenwich, so let's find out some more. There has been a market present in Greenwich since the 14th century, but it was the commissioning of a royal charter in 1700 which really cemented this site as a great market. Assigned by Lord Romney to the Greenwich Hospital, this allowed them to run a market every Wednesday and Saturday for the next 1,000 years. Originally held at the west gate of the Royal Naval College, By the 1800s, it had grown so large that it was spreading into the narrow and dark alleyways nearby, leaving the market difficult to control. In a bid to clean up the area, the market was moved to the site where it stands today. Cobblestones were laid and free roofs built, protecting traders and visitors from the weather. In 1831, you could expect to find people selling meat, fish, dairy products and vegetables. On the outskirts of the market, you could find traders selling items made from china, glass and clay. The market continued to flourish into the 20th century, although the building in which it was housed began to suffer. The timber roof was completely replaced by steel in 1908. The market was granted permission to open six days a week throughout the year, only closing on holidays. The slaughterhouses were eventually closed and the stables, not in as much use anymore, were converted into storage. After World War II, the market saw a decline in selling fresh produce, and by the 1980s, numbers were so low that Camden Market was looked to for inspiration, and a new era of arts and crafts was ushered into the market. This was a success, and even buildings nearby to the market were let to those selling artsy things. The market is still going today, And recently, the site has been enhanced further. Greenwich Market is a fairly small market, tented off from the street. 
It's semi-touristy, but plenty of locals too. I met one guy in the queue while buying a ramen burger that came all the way from Croydon on his own just to buy two of these burgers. Understandably, they did taste great, so not such a wasted journey for him. There are plenty of other unique and exotic food stores, including Ethiopian cuisine. Aside from food, there are lots of non-food related things to look at and buy. The usual market things that look nice on the stall, but when you get home, wonder why you bought it. I'd give it four stars because it's a great market. Not fantastic, but if you take into account the surrounding area of Greenwich Village and Katisark, with the numerous shops, sites and entertainment, I'd give the market a fifth star. So Greenwich Market in its current form dates back to the 1700s. Can you tell us a bit more about what really made it stand out in this period, Dan? Certainly. So I did some digging on the actual Royal Charter that was granted to Greenwich in the 1700s, and what this actually means in layman's terms. So let me explain. Prior to the 19th century, most people made their living through agriculture and livestock farming, and most lived where they worked, with relatively few towns around them. The rising need to trade the produce of the farms caused markets to grow up in the centres of the local activities. In the medieval period, markets grew up near fortified places and crossroads, but as things progressed, the English monarchy created a system by which a new market town could not be established within a certain travelling distance of an existing one, usually a day's worth of travel. It resulted in the granting of strict legal rights to markets to protect trading rights and established network of existing markets, hence the creation of the Royal Charter, which is by and large still in effect today. Ah, that all makes so much sense to me now. And I actually think we should encourage more local markets today. Oh, me too. I definitely see the benefits of the local community. I can't wait to find out more. This site first came to life when a manor house called Bella Court was built in 1433 by Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. Later taken over by Queen Margaret, she had the house extended where it became known as Palace of Placentia. The site was the perfect place for a palace, just five miles from the centre of London and sitting alongside the Thames. Henry VII remodelled the building in the late 15th century. Three courtyards stood in the centre with many gardens, fountains and beautiful lawns surrounding the palace. Henry VIII was born here in 1491 and the site became commonly known as Greenwich Palace. At the east side of the building stood a chapel, with the kitchens located on the right. A great Tudor hall was added, which is said to have had oak wooden floors with huge roof timbers painted a mustard yellow. There would have been elaborate gold gilding, and it's thought that the furniture used would have been dark wood. In preparation for the French delegation visit in 1527, a grand banquet house and theatre were also added to the palace. The palace saw many of the great events of the day, with Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon taking place here, as well as the births of his daughters, Princess Mary and Elizabeth. The reign of the Stuarts saw Charles I making the palace his royal residence. But once part of the palace was used as stables, it fell into disrepair. In 1662, Charles II demolished much of what remained of Greenwich Palace and landscaped Greenwich Park to how we know it today. A royal charter saw the site become Greenwich Hospital, which cared for seamen and their families. 
It also became a place for improving navigation and in 1705 received its first residence. Over 20,000 ex-seamen called the site home up until 1869. With changing conditions in society, being at sea wasn't as common as it once was and so the need to care for ex-servicemen dwindled. From 1873, it became the Royal Naval College, providing education, and from 1997, has since become a museum. One of the most dazzling components of the late 17th and early 18th century English architecture is the painted interior, and there's certainly no greater or indeed larger example in England than the space um, just over the, over the road over um, College Way, the Painted Hall, executed be between 1708 and 1726 to designs by James Thornhill as the centrepiece of a new hospital established by Royal Charter in 1694 for sick and injured seamen. The Painted Hall is regarded as Thornhill's masterpiece. This is an ensemble of connected spaces. First, the um, vertical domed vestibule, a relatively dark space, the extraordinary plastic architecture of, of the entrance um, to the hall. Then we have the long, uh, brightly lit lower hall, followed by the darker cube of the upper hall, and the highly theatrical painted extension of the upper hall on the west wall. And the rhythm is not dissimilar to that of the narthex, nave, and apse of a church. And the transition between each discrete, discrete space step, um, at the transition between each discrete space steps raise the viewer further, increasing the sense of progression and mounting expectation. The palace at Greenwich has seen some remarkable history, but you've managed to uncover even more historical tales, haven't you, Dan? Oh, the list just goes on and on, Misha. The palace was truly a home for kings. Humphreys was actually known as the son, brother and uncle of kings, as he was the son of King Henry IV, the brother of Henry V and the uncle of Henry VI. When Humphreys died in 1447, the palace passed back into royal hands and Henry VIII was subsequently born in the palace decades later, as was his own heir, Queen Elizabeth I. It appears that the Tudor period was truly the high mark of the palace before its use became slightly more utilitarian in later history. And elaborating on some of the strange uses for the palace over the centuries, during the English Civil War, Cromwell briefly turned the palace into a biscuit factory and then a prisoner of war camp. Again, it's so hard to imagine just how impressive of a building this was during the reign of the Tudors. I would have loved to have been around when Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn were wandering around. <laughs> I want to be a fly on that wall. So what else is there for us to find out? With the age of exploration came the need to standardise time across the world. Europeans have been taken to the seas more frequently and exploring further afield. But even then, tools for timekeeping and navigation were inaccurate. And so the pursuit began for a standard system. Astronomy will always be entwined with time and space. And so... King Charles II created a royal commission to look into investing into astronomy. This period of time is often seen as marking the starting point in Greenwich's famous affiliation to astronomy and navigation. The first part of the observatory to be completed was Flamsteed House, using it as a home for the Astronomer Royale. Thanks to the use of recycled materials, workers were able to keep within the small budget of £520. The house would eventually be extended to store newer and bigger instruments. Into the 19th century, noise, air and light pollution 
meant a new home for the observatory was being sought. It also didn't help that new train lines running nearby created vibrations and tampered with magnets needed for accurate observations. The Royal Observatory eventually got its new home at Hurstmonceux Castle in East Sussex. Since 1884, this site has also been the historic prime meridian of the world. This marked a dramatic change, as before this, almost every town across the globe kept to their own local time. In a world where travel was becoming ever more common, a system for how time could be measured needed to be agreed upon. It would finally be decided at the International Meridian Conference in Washington, D.C., by the end of the conference, Greenwich had been voted as being the best place for longitude zero degrees. From this point on, every place on Earth would be measured based on its distance from Greenwich. It was chosen as many had already been using charts with Greenwich as a guide, and so it would be at an advantage to the largest amount of people. 100 years later, with newer, more accurate technology such as satellites, it was decided that a move 102.5 metres east of the observatory was more accurate. And so today, that is the true prime meridian. This is a must-visit place if you are in London or even in any of the regions of England. We have been using the time zone GMT for ages now. So it was always a curiosity what exactly is GMT. GMT stands for Greenwich Mean Time. And yes, this is the place where time stands at zero and the entire world follows this with either adding a few hours or deducting some. I have been there once and it's an awesome experience to see the place where time starts. You can visit the observatory where you learn how this place became the point from where time starts. Entry costs around £20 and is worth it. You must see the Greenwich Mean Time line. Centralising global coordinates at Greenwich is quite an honour in the history of the local area and of Britain in general, don't you think? I mean, it pretty much means they're at the centre point of time. Yeah, it really makes you feel like London's at the centre of the world and that the observatory itself has a fascinating history. When King Charles asked Christopher Wren to build this iconic site, he asked Christopher to apply himself with the most exact care and diligence to rectifying the tables and the motions of the heavens and the places of the fixed stars. It was a rather poetic beginning to something that would be so vitally important to science and navigation. But time's moved on, and the true prime medium, as you've said, Misha, is in a different location, and is even referred to now under a different title, Universal Time, or UT. And all the versions of UT are based on the Earth's rotation relative to the distance of celestial objects, just as King Charles has envisioned it. So King Charles would have been pleased in the end then? Well, I think so, Misha. So shall we just move on to our next site? I'm really excited about this one. At the junction of Bower Avenue and Great Cross Avenue, the remains of an old Roman building can be found. On this mound of land once stood a Romano-Celtic temple, so-called because it links to an older structure dating back to the late Iron Age. It's thought that the temple would have been used throughout much of the Roman occupancy from 43 to 410 AD. Temples were a central part of Roman life, being used as centres for healing, pilgrimage and as places of worship. 
You could also find people making offerings to the gods here. Watling Street was a Roman road, linking the ports of Kent to those in London. And so, with the temple sitting alongside such a major road, you would expect to find people using the site from far and wide. These remains were accidentally found when routine maintenance was being carried out in the park in the 1900s. In 1902, a team of archaeologists first excavated the site. Some interesting finds were discovered, including painted wall plaster, an arm of a life-size statue and three different floor surfaces. Further excavations of the site followed in 1979 and then again in 1999 when the time team from Channel 4 arrived to look further into the site. These excavations found further proof of the original flooring as well as a large number of coins and pottery. These later excavations solidified the first thoughts that this was indeed the site of a former Roman temple and with the discovery of a more complex site east of the mound. Today, the site is marked with a sign donated by the Friends of Greenwich Park and the Royal Parks, with hope that the site can undergo further excavation and research in the future. Early in the first millennium, the Romans were on this very spot. Underneath this mound, which is the last high ground before London, there is a Roman building. Problem is, we don't know exactly what it is. Earlier archaeology suggests that it might be a villa or a temple or even some kind of fort. We now know that originally this mound was much bigger than it is today and that on top of it stood a huge temple which was linked to the main Roman highway into London and was built by order of one of the most important men in Roman Britain. And we know that outside the temple there was a complex of buildings inside of which were rooms with decorated wall plaster and high quality Samian ware on the table. But I think for all of us this inscribed tablet which we feel confirmed this site as a temple was the most amazing thing to see. There's something that many archaeologists spend a whole lifetime looking for and never find. One of those rare times when we can actually read the words of the past. One Roman's message to his gods. It's always a brilliant find when we stumble across Roman ruins in England. Could you give us a bit of a backstory to the Roman invasion of Great Britain, Dan? Oh, I most definitely can, Misha. I love any excuse to talk about the Romans. London was settled by the Romans in AD 43 as a small provincial garrison no bigger than half a mile. So think of Hyde Park with a military fortress on a high hill. It was almost lost to a Celtic tribe in AD 60, the Isenna, in a rebellion led by a queen known as Boudicca. But the Romans returned in force, crushing the rebellion, and by the end of the century establishing Londinium as a large Roman town, which grew to around about 60,000 people, replacing what was the previous provincial capital, Colchester. During the Trajan period of the 2nd century, Londinium was at its height, but large amounts of archaeological evidence seemed to indicate that there was a huge fire around this time. Londinium contracted in size and population density, and although it remained an important part of the Roman Empire, no further expansion occurred. So much history to discuss in such a short space of time. It's hard to know where to begin when it comes to the Romans. I know, right? But this is such a fantastic site to look at as it's just one example of the true origins of London itself. Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson died in battle in October 1805. 
He had been shot at one o'clock that day by a French musketman just 15 metres away. It was the Battle of Trafalgar, where the British faced the joint forces of France and Spain. Despite the loss of a favoured hero of the time, the battle was won. Lord Nelson died shortly after hearing the news at four o'clock. Nelson had been admired for his leadership, inspiration and great war tactics, leading the British to many successes at sea. The British nation was deeply saddened, with King George III saying at the time, we have lost more than we have gained. No wonder he went on to be honoured with Nelson's column which towers over Trafalgar Square. His body was carried back from battle, stored in a barrel of brandy for preservation. Nelson was granted a state funeral, which was said to have been the greatest the age has ever seen. His coffin laid in state in Greenwich Hospital, where around 100,000 visitors paid their respects. Nelson's coffin had been made from the wooden mast taken from a French ship destroyed at his earlier victory in the Battle of the Nile. After two days, Nelson's body began the journey, first to Westminster and then to St Paul's. A funeral procession two miles long and made up of colourful barges made its way down the Thames. Nelson was carried on the Royal Barge. The riverbanks were lined with mourners, removing their hats and bowing their heads. Waiting overnight in Whitehall, Nelson's body was laid to rest in St Paul's Cathedral within a sarcophagus. Greenwich, an area which had cared for and educated seamen for so long, held deep ties with Nelson. Many of his awards and medals are today displayed within the National Maritime Museum, along with other personal items, including the uniform he was shot and killed in. England has had many heroes, but never one so entirely possessed the love of his fellow countrymen as Nelson. All men knew that his heart was as humane as it was fearless, and that there was not in his nature the slightest alloy of selfishness or cupidity, and that with perfect and entire devotion he served his country with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength, and therefore they loved him as truly and as fervently as he loved England. The Battle of Trafalgar that resulted in Nelson's death is one of the most iconic moments in European history and was crucial to the defeat of the French forces under Napoleon Bonaparte. Can you tell us more, Dan? I can, Misha. The French Revolution and the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte is one of my favourite periods in history. And if I was to pick one of the most important battles from a British perspective, it would certainly be Trafalgar. Napoleon had returned from Egypt in 1799 and seized control of the government in a military coup. An uneasy peace between France and Britain came to an end in 1803 after Napoleon's imperial desires became too much for Britain to bear. Napoleon was planning on an invasion of Britain in 1805, amassing 180,000 men in Boulogne in preparation. However, a complex plan had to be devised to draw away the superior British fleet stationed in the Channel. This would be done by threatening their possessions in the West Indies. The entire plan failed as the British fleet caught up with the French and obliterated them at Trafalgar. Napoleon never again got the opportunity to challenge the British at sea or threaten an invasion, so he turned his gaze to the continental powers around him. Napoleon was finally defeated at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815 by a coalition of European powers. Wow, so dramatic. 
I can't imagine how he must have felt as he clung on to life awaiting news of the victory. It really was a dramatic moment in British history. So now let's head to the beach. If you look down towards the Thames at Greenwich today, you will probably see a deserted foreshore beneath you. But it wasn't always like this. Once upon a time, Londoners would flock to these shores in their masses to take a well-deserved break. Seasides experienced a surge in popularity throughout the Victorian and Edwardian periods, where residents of the UK would take a holiday break at seaside resorts like Broadstairs and Margate. But some of Greenwich's poorer inhabitants couldn't afford to visit these destinations and so turned to the Thames and its riverbanks for some recreational fun. Parts of the river not congested with traffic or being used as busy ports for unloading goods were turned into self-made beaches for Londoners to enjoy. Some would wear swimming costumes, but it's expected not many would swim, as the waters were even more polluted back then. The foreshore at Greenwich wasn't just full of holidaymakers, but also mudlarkers made up their numbers. A mudlarker is someone who scavenges riverbanks in search of valuable items. In the Victorian times, this was a common career for street children, hunting for items to sell in order to feed themselves. Being used as a dumping ground throughout the ages, the River Thames can often throw up valuable goods. From Roman coins to Tudor remnants, Whilst mudlarking as a job was discouraged at the turn of the 20th century, today it has seen a resurgence amongst amateur archaeologists hoping to discover a piece of the past. A common find you can discover along the foreshore are clay pipes. Used in the past to smoke tobacco, when the user reached the end, they would simply toss the pipe away and so the Thames has become a graveyard for many discarded pipes. You can also find pieces of pottery and many animal bones, the remains of Tudor feasts frequently held in Greenwich Palace. I've been meaning to get down to Greenwich for ages for a mudlark and got my chance with my sister Laura in 2013. Find of the day had to be the best clay pipe I've found so far, with roses on one side and thistles on the other, no doubt representing England and Scotland. The Greenwich shore we visited is so different from the ones we usually graze, much more beach-like with large patches of sand and shingle. The same occasional piles of animal bones are found, which always seem to congregate with lumps of coal and river-rounded bricks. We met a delightful man who's been metal detecting for years. He explained that up until a few years ago, the beach was covered in mud. The mud has been washed away by the Thames clippers, which continue to erode the remaining mud banks, washing all that history into the Thames. Good job there are a few mudlarkers who regularly sweep this stuff up and take anything important to the Museum of London. Greenwich Beach is a real treasure trove for archaeologists. Have you uncovered any interesting finds in your research, Dan? Well, after taking a look into it, there are a lot of reasons as to why mudlarking is still going strong, and new archaeological finds occur constantly. As recently as 1999, for example, the movement of the Thames Clippers, the travel service up and down the river, they actually disturbed the mud banks, and this resulted in the finding of a whole new wave of artefacts. The best 50 finds by the public were documented in a TV series called Britain's Secret Treasures, and of course, some prominent mudlarkers featured in the list. The changing tides and the movement on the river is dredging up our ancient past year on year. So keep it up, mudlarkers, you never know what you might find. I've had a go myself and uncovered one or two clay pipes. Definitely would recommend it. 
Now, sticking to the river, that brings us onto our next site, the Greenwich Docklands. London was once the largest port in the world. Taken in goods from around the globe, they were unloaded at ports across the capital and distributed to the rest of the population from here. Since Roman times and through to the medieval period, boats would unload their goods at wharves along the River Thames near to Southwark. But as the city grew and trade increased, larger docks were built towards East London and the city. Some of the largest docks were found in Wapping, Canary Wharf, the Isle of Dogs and the Royal Docks at Woolwich. There are almost 700 former wharves, docks and piers along the Thames and at the height of the trade you could find 1,700 wharves between Kent in the east where goods entered the Thames towards Brentford in the west of London. Whilst the docks at Greenwich weren't the largest or most important they still played a part in bringing in commodities from across the world. You can often guess what goods would have been incoming from the name of the wharf, as well as being named after the country they were importing goods from, like Jamaica Wharf or East India Docks and Honduras Wharf. Some interesting docks to be found in Greenwich include Billingsgate Dock, used for unloading fish, with a similar name to Billingsgate Quay, used for the famous fishing market. Thames Soap and Candle Works, where soap and candles would be made from whale fat and coconut oil from the plantations. Without the docks and wharves, none of the goods coming in from the British colonies would have had a place to be stored. And so, while some have been transformed into swanky riverside apartments today, they still provide a glimpse of the past. The Cockby humour never left us one minute. It was a joy to live in that era, if you could put it that way, because the community spirit was total. We was all really up against it. We was cold and we was hungry. There wasn't enough coal to light our fires till four o'clock in the afternoon, so it meant going to school extremely cold. And at one stage I became so thin, so malnourished, that I was sent to a residential school for malnourished kids. And the road I lived in was Jersey Road, and half the kids in Jersey Road were there with me. So it was pretty tough. But that's the sort of the downside of it. But it still was these beautiful docks. And these docks were, I inherited these docks because my mother's brothers were all stokers, back many years. My father, after he came out of the army, went back to sea as a cook. And all I wanted to do was actually go to sea. So we progressed. I had a few jobs out here when I was 15 years old, but at the age of 16, I went to a naval training school in Gravesend, and we come, I was in catering. And the very first ship I ever joined in these docks was a boat called the Good Oak Castle. Just as interesting a story about what became the Docklands is what never became. A great political rivalry between two archetypal figures in the mid-19th century resulted in a stalemate, which preserved the remaining land on the Greenwich Peninsula, where the Millennium Dome would eventually be built. The son of a wealthy Russian financier, whose family owned much of the Greenwich Peninsula area, drew up plans to transform the entire area into a massive dock, connected to outer London by a network of railways. How did that happen then? Well, in the elections of the 1850s, the descendants of these Russian financiers, the Angustines, came to heads with a man on a mission, a man known as Cole's Child. 
Cole's child was campaigning for the regeneration of Greenwich that would bring business and travel through the Docklands. Political tensions between two electoral rivals, the Solomons and the Angustines, stalled the creation of the new Docklands, and Cole's child demanded Angustine place his support behind the creation of the docks, and perhaps even donate the land to the people if he did not intend to build them himself. In the end, Angustine lost the election to the Solomons, and the plan for the expansion of the Docklands was scrapped, in some part due to the incessant attacks upon Angustine's character by Cole's child. Mm, I do love a good political drama, but let's move on. This mighty ship, now anchored in Greenwich, has seen many voyages around the world. The Cutty Sark was built in Scotland in 1869 and was designed to carry tea from China to England as fast as possible. The ship's first journey was to Shanghai, taking the route via the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. To China, they carried vast amounts of wine, spirits and beer. The journey took four months. They arrived in Shanghai early June 1870. Docking for around 20 days, they loaded over a million pounds in tea. That's pounds in weight, by the way. They set off back for London, taking another four months to reach their return destination. The Cutty Sark took seven more trips like this in the following years, all on the hunt for tea to quench the nation. In the year of 1872, the Cutty Sark would have its moment to prove itself fastest in collecting tea from the east. Racing a rival clipper ship, the pair set off in June, sailing from Wusong. From the China Sea and into the Indian Ocean, they closely matched each other. By August, the Cutty Sark was in its element, charging ahead in strong winds, and by this point was 400 miles ahead of its competitor. But disaster struck when the Cutty Sark's rudder was broken. The strong-willed crew fixed and repaired the rudder twice, but it wasn't enough. The clipper overtook the ship and arrived back in London a week ahead of the Cutty Sark. With technology improving rapidly at this time, steamers began to take precedence in the trade of tea over sail ships. Cutty Sark collected its last shipment of tea from China in 1877. Not only was there an improvement in boats being used for trading, but the Suez Canal had opened, being a major alternative trade route. This route cut through Africa, giving a direct route for boats from the Mediterranean into the Red Sea. But sail ships couldn't take this route. They relied on the trade winds to power their movement, and this was simply wasn't available on the canal, and so they had to continue taking the long route around the whole of Africa. The Cutty Sark's owners had to look for other work and began trading goods such as coal, castor oil and a material called jute, used to make jute bags today. The crew on board the Cutty Sark also witnessed some dramatic times. In 1880, when second-in-command Sidney Smith had killed a man and been locked away on board, the captain, James Wallace, helped him escape. The crew weren't happy and mutiny quickly followed. The crew stopped working and the ship soon became stuck in the Java Sea for three days. Captain Wallace, gripped with guilt and knowing of the impending ruin of his career, jumped overboard. There was an attempted rescue, 
but only a group of sharks could be seen circling where Wallace was last spotted. She's as beautiful, elegant and bursting with historic character as ever. When you enter the bottom of the dry dock, the whole ship's suspended on giant metal props, and you can walk or drink tea under her keel. This is a wonderful mixture of brilliant engineering and art. My children love the hands-on activities on the various decks. The film shows and information throughout were clear and concise. Just forward of the ship's stem is a curious exhibition of figureheads. These are the remains of ancient ships that have gone to a nautical graveyard throughout the mists of time. They have an eerie charm and everyone looks like they have a secret sealed in oak. Travel, trade and mutiny. The Cutty Sark has an incredibly rich history, confined to such a small space. What happened in the later days of the ship, Dan? After being bought by Gia Ferreira and Co, the Cutty Sark was renamed the Ferreira, and in reflection of her days in the 1870s and early 1880s, the Ferreira ferried cargoes between Portugal and their empire. When Portugal declared war on Germany in 1915, the ship was in constant danger of being sunk. And she survived unscathed until May 1916, when the rolling of the ship in bad weather damaged the ship severely. She was towed to a port in South Africa. It was returned to British hands in 1923, rescued by Wilfred Dowman, a retired windjammer skipper. He paid £3,750 more than when she was worth even in 1895. Just imagine all the things the Cutty Sark has seen and continues today as it sits in Greenwich. Now... Let's go on to Site 9. Greenwich Foot Tunnel burrows beneath the River Thames, linking Greenwich on one side to the Isle of Dogs on the other. The ground on the Isle of Dogs was marshy and not many people wanted to live there. But as trade and the British economy grew, this area saw a rise in activity directly related to the docks and the population on the Isle of Docks grew steadily throughout the 19th century. The boom in trade saw employment and people commuting towards the docks increasing. The foot tunnel was built to solve the problem of overcrowding on the ferries, which were typically used to transport workers in the past. Ferries were also expensive and unreliable, and so a quicker route to work was most certainly welcomed by locals on the Isle of Docks. The foot tunnel was built by Sir Alexander Binney, the same man who had built Blackwall Tunnel and Vauxhall Bridge. It was to be London's only tunnel for pedestrians and was a major engineering feat at the time, with the use of 200,000 white tiles lining the inside of the tunnel, it gives an eerie feel along with its bellowing echoes. At the time, the tunnel cost £120,000 to build, about £13 million in today's money. Just three metres wide across, the tunnel is 370 metres in length, and the only clues that it's there beneath the Thames are its entrances at either side, with one standing at Greenwich and the other at Island Gardens. The entrances to the tunnel are made of red brick, topped with a glass dome. To reach the tunnel, you can take a lift or the stairs down. In World War II, the tunnel was damaged by bombs and it had to be closed for repairs. A temporary free ferry service was provided to those needed to reach the other side. Today, the tunnel remains open 24-7, allowing people to easily pass from one side of the River Thames to the other. 
One of the earliest photos I ever took in 1977, and one I am still proud of, was of the foot tunnel. I've been chased into the tunnel by South London yobs. I've been involved in fights in the tunnel. I've had to make my way through a darkened tunnel because the lights had been vandalised after a disco boat full of island teenagers had ended its journey at Greenwich Pier. I've cycled and skateboarded through the tunnel. You could say that me and the tunnel go back a long way. Greenwich Tunnel sounds quite an interesting place. It certainly does, Misha. And I wanted to tell listeners a little bit more about the man that made the tunnel, Sir Alexander Binney. As you said, he's the same Alexander Binney responsible for designing the original Blackwall Tunnel, which opened before the Foot Tunnel had back in 1897. So just how was one man involved in so many of London's big engineering feats? Well, Alexander was the chief engineer of London County Council, and with that title came the opportunity to work on some of the capital's biggest projects. He went on to be knighted by Queen Victoria for his services to engineering, and he was also involved in designing major parts of London's sewer system. He went on to find a firm under his own name, which his son William then went on to take over. A nice piece of architectural history there, then. Now, let's go on to our final site. We've now come out of the footpath tunnel and we're standing on the other side of the River Thames in Island Gardens. Opened in 1895, this parkland covers three acres and lies at the southern end of the Isle of Dogs. This is where it gets its island name. As you can see, the park has fantastic views of Greenwich, even being called the greatest view in Europe by Sir Christopher Wren. Famous landscape painter Canaletto also painted the view in his 17th century painting, View of Greenwich from the River. From this side of the Thames, we can see the Cutty Sark, the old Greenwich Hospital and the National Maritime Museum, all with Greenwich Park peaking in the background. As many of the green spaces in London, Island Gardens was open space set aside during the growing industrial times of the mid-19th century. There were a few key influences in getting the designated land. One was medical inspector John Liddell, who had been visiting Greenwich Hospital and wasn't too keen on the air or visual pollution and highly recommended that they purchase some land on the opposite side of the river to prevent the total closure and to shut out the annoyances of gloomy and unsightly and offensive buildings, in his own words. Whilst there were talks of building a plantation-style villa on the land, the underdeveloped area was never desirable enough to attract the wealthy. And so, with the help of local politician Will Crooks, the island garden eventually opened. Will had been a great influence in the area, been involved in a number of efforts locally to improve facilities and infrastructure. Will went on to formally open the park on the 3rd of August, 1895. The Island Gardens rightfully claimed, and still claim, a special place in the hearts of islanders. Not because the gardens offer a brief escape from an otherwise grey industrial world, but because they provide one of the finest views in the country a view that is certainly among the best historical city views in the world. The view across the Thames to Greenwich, to the former Royal Naval College and Dreadnought Seamen's Hospital, to the Cutty Sark, to Queen Mary's House and the National Maritime Museum, 
across the park and up the hill to the Royal Observatory and the lone statue of General Wolfe. All of these can be taken in from a park bench in the island gardens. What better place for a hard-working docker or factory girl to sit a while? So we've come full circle here with the island gardens, containing some of the most important historical elements of Greenwich. That's right, Misha, and what a beautiful part of London to end on. As you said, standing here gives you the perfect view of Greenwich in its entirety. You're getting a spectacular view of the Curry Sark, the old Royal Naval College, all completed with a view of Greenwich Park sitting in the background. It's said that the artist Canaletto, who painted the view, didn't even visit the site, such as its notoriety. Lovely. A perfect end to this week's episode. Well, that's all for this week in episode three. We hope you learned a thing or two. Thank you to everyone who we've interviewed and helped to make this week's episode possible. A special thanks, as always, to our hardworking researchers, Hasib and Ewan. Thank you to the Shout Out Network for hosting our show and all the other great podcasts on the network. And thanks to our sound engineer and producer. Don't forget we keep these discussions going over our social media accounts. So please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at an archived and catch us on Instagram at an archived UK. Also, if you've liked what you've been hearing, please leave us a comment and reviews on the Apple Store or on SoundCloud as we'd love to hear your response. And we're always looking to hear about your local stories. So if you'd like to help us preserve the past for the future, drop us an email to info at anarchive.co or feel free to send us an audio of your story direct and you might get a feature in the show. And remember, we're showing you around all the sites discussed on the show on our guided tours this summer. So book your tickets at www.unarchive.co. And things are getting exciting as the Shout Out Network are holding a launch party on the 6th of August. We'll be there with a live performance of our podcast, along with our network cousins, Melanin Millennials, Mostly Lit and Two Fools Talking. If you love the show or just want to attend a cool party this summer, then check out the news and events section at shoutoutnetwork.co.uk. Thanks again for listening to us. Next week, we'll be discussing the history of Notting Hill. It's one not to be missed. <laughs>